NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void and a cool one. We got some record-breaking stuff to talk about with this guy. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Um, my name is Luigi, Luigi Cani. Uh, I, I jump. I have been <laughs> jumping for 25 years. Um, half of my life, I'm going to turn 50 and I started in 1995. Um, it's been a big part of my life, um, and uh, that's what I do for a living. Sure. Well, you jumping. and I, you and I started. Uh, I think you and I started jumping right around the same time because I started uh, in '96, not too far behind you. Uh huh. That's the, cool. So, <laughs> I mean, oh, I yeah. got a lot of so stuff I want. Probably wanted. we had some. 
Go, go ahead. Go ahead. We had we had some similar experiences. Probably, I think we started at the same time frame for sure. So I want to awesome. ask. I've got a lot of que- I've got a million questions about a bunch of different stuff, um, especially a lot of the record stuff that you've done. Um, but as is the norm with the podcast, I want to go all the way to the back of the beginning of your career. You said '95. Um, where were you jumping? Was skydiving your first extreme sport, or was this just kind of your thing from the beginning? Uh, no, um, I. Um... Actually, at the time, I was into uh, uh, mixed martial arts. Okay. That was just the beginning of. Uh, I was doing uh, Muay Thai. Uh, there's a famous gym here in Brazil, uh, down south in Curitiba, where I was born. Um, and uh, I was part of a, 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 a good crew of fighters. I was... Uh, Friends with uh, Anderson Silva, wow. uh, Vanderlei Silva. They are all um, old school now, but uh, we are young at the time. Hmm. And um, no one has made a career at anything, not fighting or jumping. But um, I was very dedicated to um, the Muay Thai and the Jiu-Jitsu. And then uh, one day I was driving my car to work and I heard this advertisement in the radio station talking about skydiving. Hmm. Um, down south in Brazil it was not popular at all and I have never seen a parachute. I have never flown in an airplane, I think. And uh, they said something like, oh, oh you know, I got this guy from Sao Paulo. Um, they're doing a search down here in Curitiba. Come check it out. You can jump from 9,000 feet. And I thought, wow, 9,000 feet, that must be high. <laughs> that must be cool. So I skipped work and I drove to the, uh, to the airport. And uh, as I was asking for information uh, at the parking lot, the guy said, oh, no, they're jumping right now. Just look up. And then I look it up and I saw three people in free fall just as they are breaking off right before opening the parachute. And I saw for the first time. And then I thought that was crazy. Mm. You know, back in the day, I have no, I didn't know anything about sport. And uh, and I thought, wow, these guys are crazy. They must be feel amazing what they're feeling, you know. And uh, I signed up for the course. It was a uh, static line course. I did five days ground school. Uh, and then the first jump, it was a unique drop zone because it was a small airport in the middle of the city. So um, the landing area was small. So what they would do, they would, one jump master will jump first. No, no. The jump master will let you go on a static line jump, like, you know, at 4,000 feet. And then he goes after you. He opens his parachute, a big parachute, and he flies in front of you. So he's talking on the radio. And you follow him all the way through landing because if you don't land on the right spot, you're in trouble. You know, <laughs> only power lines and buildings, you know. Sure. So it was very intimidating. And uh, uh, for my surprise, when they opened the door for my first jump, I was almost in panic. I realized I, have, I, was, af- I was afraid of heights, you know. <laughs> like these days, you know, like you and me, you know, we have been doing this for a long time. We can tell people in the airplane who is really nervous, who is not. You know, when you see 
people doing tandems, you know, and you see that people that you feel sorry for them. I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I, it was almost like, almost panicking. That's how much scared I was. Mm. I was. But then once I land, I had this feeling that it was not about the freedom or the extreme or the adrenaline, you know, or the speed. Whatever people think it is, it was that was part of it. But the, the major part was like facing my weakness. It was like you know the accomplishment of doing something that would make me feel so intimidated and so scared. And the feeling of having control of that, that was what made me to keep on going. Yeah. Sure. You know, that's uh, yeah. it, it's been really funny that I've been able to talk to so many people that have been in the sport for years and years. And um, I get comments from a lot of the people that listen to the podcast saying one of their favorite things is when they hear someone like yourself, someone that's very well known in the sport, many, many years, many, many jumps and many accomplishments they like hearing that you were fucking scared because, yeah. you know, people get this natural assumption that these rock stars in the sport that are doing these innovative things must not get scared. And chances are they've been shitting their pants right along the way with the rest of us. And people like knowing yeah. that, you know? Exactly. And if they are not, they are in danger because, you know, um, this is what I think when I see, because most people are not as scared as I am up to these days you mm. know every time i'm doing something different and doing a different jump i'm very scared and uh i think it's good because i take a lot of i'm very careful uh with the stuff that i do i'm very uh technical and very uh, uh particular about the safety and you know these days i try to team up with people that they help me to make the decisions you know uh, and how to do it, if do or not, you know, when to do it, and things like that. And I try to don't rely only on my expertise, but I use, I'm, you know, I'm always more comfortable when I have people that they have lots of experience on their field as well, and they are like my guard angels, but sure. they're like professional people that they have been in the industry, that they work for a long time, they love what they do, and... And uh, that's how I do things these days. You know, I don't rely on luck. Sure. At all. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> when you got started like that, you land from your first jump, and and you said it was a tough first jump. I was the same way. Uh, I landed from that first jump, wanting to go right back up, but uh, terrified of it at the same time. Um, how hard was it to get yourself back in the plane that next time, and then to finish the course? I mean, did you really have to fight exactly. it? Exactly. A lot. I mean, it was crazy because uh, first I thought, okay, this is how I plan it. So I have. I was working in an office, and I thought I will do this once in a month mm. because once in a month it's a hobby. It's not a sport. You know, it's like going to the Six Flags and you know going to a roller coaster. You know, I'm just go there and do once and then I will release my stress and I look at my budget. Oh, maybe I can afford this to do once per month. And that was my plan. So after the first landing, I was like, I want to go it again. You know, I even didn't have the funds or anything, but I want to go it again. I don't know why. And then 
on the first day, I think I did six jumps. Wow. On the first day. I was supposed to do one, one per month, right? But I remember that inside of the airplane, as soon as I they put my gear on, they put me inside the airplane. As soon as the airplane takes off, I was, I regret. I was like, why did I do this? Right. And, oh, my God. And I was thinking, I, oh, my mom told me, you know, this is not a good idea. You know, my mom didn't like it at all. And, um, and I was like that every jump. Sure. Every jump. And then I, I remember um, I pushed it hard. Like, it was only a weekend's that they have the drop zone working. And then on the second weekend, I went to my jump jump number 11. So at the time, it was not like a AFF course. It was like a static line that, you know, the first thing you you go, you do three jumps with the static line, and then the first one, you pull the ripcord, and then you take like five seconds and pull the ripcord. If you do right, you take 10 seconds. And then I think my jump 11... I was already jumped from like, I don't know, 10,000 feet. I think that was the highest they would go. And you free fall all the way to 5,000. And my jump number 11, it was cold, um, very cold. And uh, I start spinning on my own. Nobody's there, you know. <laughs> and I was spinning like crazy. And then I opened my parachute. And then I had, you know, line twists and stuff. And, um, and um, I landed. And then I said, this is not for me. You know, I was too scared. Sure. I didn't have control, you know, of the spinning. And um, and that's how they, this is old school, you know, sure. like, you know, you're by yourself, you know, you figured it out. Um, and then I stopped doing it for one month. I said, no, I'm going to die doing this stuff. This is right. not for me. Uh, to make the long, long story short, I came back one day. It was a... Uh, a warm day, and then it was sunny. I had nothing to do. I said, I'm going to go there, check it out. And then I jumped, and I had a great jump. And then I got back on track. Um, I remember I had a cutaway very early, like jump number 15. Mm. Probably shouldn't cut away. It was something to do with the toggle. I could take the toggle, you know, but sure. I cut it away. Those, you know, the instructions. And then I was like, whoa, you know, I was petrified. But I got that out of the way very early. So sure. the reserve works. And then uh, I start to, and then I, I, I use all my savings, you know, all my plans changed, <laughs> right? you know, all my savings, everything. Oh, I don't need to buy an apartment anymore. You know, <laughs> this is where I'm going to spend my money. And I put everything a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I was putting into it. And then I was jumping as much as I could. Um, obviously we had the limitation. It's not like, you know, a big drop zone or, Nothing like today. Um, if you're lucky, you know, you make like five jumps in a weekend. And then I was doing that all the time. And then there's some, um, and then I started going to Sao Paulo where they have Boituva now. It's the biggest drop zone in Brazil. Mm. So very soon, my weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I would drive, you know, 800 kilometers every weekend to go to Sao Paulo and spend. And then there we could make a lot of more jumps, you know, sure. make like 20 jumps in one weekend. And two years later, I don't know if I'm going too fast. No, 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 please. Uh, two, is, two years later, I sold everything and I moved to California, to Los Angeles. I, we used to watch those uh, VHS tapes. Oh, yeah. And um, 
it was when uh, Charles Bryan and and Free Fly Clowns and Fly Boys yeah, and man. there's some stuff like Rickster Powell for swooping, you know. And I was like really into swooping, and um, we used to watch those videos. And then I was like, okay, Fly Boys are in California, you know. I was a big fan of JC uh, sure. from PD Factory team, John Cocleasure. I was like, oh, this guy, he's number one now, you know, he's doing the swooping stuff. And uh, I want to meet these people. So I sold everything and I bought um, uh, extension classes at UCLA for advertising and uh, video production. And then I used that excuse to go <laughs> to... To California, jump. <laughs> so you got yourself into college courses in California, not to go to college, but to jump in Paris. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that's fucking awesome. <laughs> that's pretty much what I did. That's yeah, I awesome. To, because it was crazy. Like nobody would support me. Uh, I I didn't rely on anybody's money. You know, I I started work very early and I did everything with my own funds. You sure. know. Uh, I did how I could, but uh, still, you know, your family, it's like, this is 1997. Yeah. You know, you're going to go chase what? Yeah. A skydiving career? What? What is that? <laughs> what a parachute will do for you? Sure. You're going to kill yourself. Sure. You know? That's not a job. So it was hard for people to understand. And uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it, well, yeah. we were talking pre-podcast, uh, trying to figure out where our paths would have crossed. And you've already gotten to where they crossed because you were pretending to be in college in California at the same time I was driving to Paris on the weekends from Las Vegas because Paris was the turban drop zone. Uh, and just like you, scared shitless all the time. I had my first cutaway in Paris at 25 jumps, broke my leg on 27th <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> so we would How have crossed paths. How did you break your leg? Um, just I, bad landing? Or just uh, yeah, it was a bad landing. Somebody loaned me a canopy that was a lot more uh, aggressive than I should have been on, and I panicked, uh -huh. flared about 30 feet up, and then let up on the toggles and drilled myself in. <laughs> so completely my fault, you know, and just like you, uh -huh. I think that first cutaway was probably just a toggle fire and I freaked out, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> you know, it is what it is. And it was, it was yeah. kind of the same thing. We ended up going to Paris Valley because that's where the Flyboys were, man. That's where, yeah. that's where they were doing all this cutting edge shit. Cause we were watching, um, you know, all the videos that they, the clowns had put out and Chronicles videos. I mean, are you kidding? Uh -huh. That was the most amazing yeah. stuff ever. So that's, that's where yeah. we would have crossed passes in Paris. So, uh -huh. so you, you, it's a great place. It was a magic time too. Yeah. Man, oh my God. That was Mecca that time then. in Paris. It was magic. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the best time of my life. Yeah. I have, I have only good memories, you know, from that place. It's amazing. Now, did you, when you, you took off to California for, that's the best damn reason I've ever heard, <laughs> by the way, you, <laughs> you get to Paris. Um, by then, did you have enough jumps and experience to start working there? No, I got there. I had, well, I made 600 jumps in Brazil in two years, Jeez. which the time was a lot. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, as I said, I put everything in and then I bought, you know, a camera at the time. We used like those PC7. Yeah. PC7 was the one. Yeah. Yeah. That I remember the best. Yeah. And then I, uh, I went to Paris and, uh, 
I got there and I had a very bad English, you know, I barely could speak English. Mm. Um, and then I went with two friends. Um, they went only for vacation and they would come back to Brazil and I would stay there. So I had this girl that, you know, she was, she was with me. We, we ended up being uh, dating for, for a little while, but she, she spoke a good English. And I got to Paris, you know, and I made a fun jumps and I was like trying to meet people and people were very friendly, you know, I got along with people very quick. Sure. And then <clears throat> I had my camera helmet and then this is how it happened for the first time. Um, I was there and they had this uh, competition, this championship, it was like a four-way camp or something, um, event. And... There's a lot of teams, you know, back in the day. Sure. They had those events, a lot of four-way people. Oh, yeah. And um, and then Craig O'Brien was the chief of the camera guys. And then I was like, you know, maybe you go there and ask if they need help, you know, to film. And she goes to uh, Craig. And I was, like, super fresh. I was there, like, not even for a month, you know. And I was living in Los Angeles, so it's not that I was, I was living at the drop zone. Sure. We would drive on the weekends. And then, and Craig, yeah, sure. Does he have two parachutes? I was like, I didn't have two parachutes to make back to back. Right. And she's like, sure, he does. So she loaned me her big parachute, you know. And then I was doing back to back like crazy, you know. And then like, <laughs> oh, you know, you're framing Ryan. He gave me some tips. And then, uh, um, and then I was like a dream, you know. It's like the first time I made as many jumps as I could make, you know, I didn't have to stop for, it was crazy because, oh, you don't, I even didn't feel like I have to stop to get food, you know, I just would sure. jump as much as I could, you know, back in the day. And uh, I ended up making some cash and make, you know, tons of jumps like I never made before. Yeah. I was like, oh man, this is it. And uh, so I met Craig O'Brien right there. And then, you know, about same time I met everybody and, uh, I think I I was so excited and my passion for skydiving was so genuine that people they, they can sense that, you know, they sure. see in your eyes, like they see how your eyes is bright about what you're doing. And then uh you know, down here in Brazil, uh, especially back in the day, always like Oh, you know, American people, you know, they don't like people from Latin America and they don't give you chances and this and that. And for me, it was 100% the opposite, you know, because I was coming from a third world country, you know, to United States, you know, that was my, you know, first time there. And uh, and uh, all the doors were open, you sure. know, the same way it was for everybody. And I thought, wow, this is cool. You know, these people are... Um, it's very special because I think, you know, the jumpers, they are like, um, even though you have a crazy way to live life and all that, but we are very down to earth as far as relationship and things that matters in life, you sure. know, and we, you're not superficial as much as, you know, um, some of the other um areas that you socialize and I felt that and uh and then um I ended up staying for only 12 years 
<laughs> Only twelve years. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, you're you're dead on in the uh, the relationships that people form in the sport. Uh, not only are friendships made quickly, uh, but they're really close and tight bonds. Uh, and I keep likening it to um, a soldier's kind of friendship because we're putting ourselves through sometimes dangerous, sometimes scary experiences together, and that bonds people tightly, you know? Um, And you've got such a variety of people from so many different walks of life and so many different professions that do what we do, it's kind of hard to be pretentious about it. And I'm sure you're the same as me. Uh, The longer I was in the sport, uh, the more I found that all of my friends, with very few exceptions, were jumpers. Either they were, you know, just casual fun jumpers or they were working in the sport. But all of a sudden, my non-jumping friends just didn't get me anymore, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And they couldn't quite get that mentality of what would drive you to do something that you've already said scares the shit out of you. Uh, and I'm sure you're the same. I look back on those beginning years when I was still terrified jumping, and I can't I can't figure out how I managed to get through all those years, but I had so much fun being scared. Mm-hmm. it's It's strange because fear doesn't give you any good feeling. Fear mm. just gives you stress, you know, uh, um, um, it's not comfortable, you know, it's a place where you want to get out of it. and uh, for some reason, uh, after you you accomplish what was scaring you before, that feeling is so much stronger than what you're feeling before. You know, the, the good feeling after you accomplish something. You know, uh, I think sev- like everything in life. You know, nothing sure. comes easy. So, uh, but you know, the jumping activity. You know, the the high risk sports they have something that's that's very hard to deal with it's like losing your life sure you know um so most of the jobs you don't have that and i think this is something that you know a lot of times when you see the um i don't know obviously you have been in a situation where you know uh, you have a close close call uh um and uh, I think we all have, if you have been in the sport for this long, we, ha- we all have seen people dying that we know. We all have seen people that we care about dying. And um, sometimes it's very hard and very tough to make a decision, you know, like, right. oh, should I keep on going? Uh, I don't have problems with that for a long time, but I think up to when Eli passed away. Yeah. I was in Switzerland. Uh, we were together. Ugh. And uh, that year, you know, there was like a couple people close to me that died too. And then Eli died. And uh, after that, I started having na- nightmares. Mm. I came back. I, you know, I ended my trip right there when he died, you know. And then uh, I went back to Los Angeles. And... Uh, I went for one month without sleeping proper. I was mm. having nightmares, like sure. horrible nightmares, you know, about the people that I know that have been dying in the sport and dreaming about other people that I care dying, all re- related to jumping. Sure. You know, horrible dreams, nightmares, nightmares. And I went one month without jumping thinking, should I keep doing on this, you know, like three top guys just passed away, you know. Mm and uh, doing projects. And then 
after one month, I had to decide what I what I'm going to do with my life. And uh, I thought, let me study as much as I can what happened, mm. why it happened, you know, everything about it, not just the uh, technical or the physics, but the psychology inside of their heads, you know, what sure. put themselves in that position to take that risk, to make that mistakes, blah, 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 blah. And I came to a conclusion that I wouldn't die the same way they did. Mm. It wouldn't happen to me. Not because I'm better, just because I'm different. For instance, two of the, those three stunts, I wouldn't even do it. Mm. It wouldn't even appeal to me the risk to do it. Sure. And I was like, okay, so I'm keep on going. And uh, I, uh, I had my very last close call in 2007. And uh, Eli passed away in a very similar situation that I had in my last close call. Hmm. And we talked at the bar for three hours about my experience hmm. and how lucky I was and what happened because he was, having, he was struggling with the same thing. Hmm. Uh, and then next morning, sure enough, and I... And I and I was trying to talk him out of it. He was kind of asking for help. You know, oh, Sarah's mad of me. You know, I'm still here. It's like, dude, go back to your family. You know, sure. you have nothing to prove here anymore. Sure. Um, so uh, I think that was a big lesson for me. And uh, after that, I didn't have any close call. So mm. my last close call was 2007. Eli passed away. I don't remember, 2009, I guess. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, it's a beautiful sport. Sure. You know? Sure. Well, it has some risk. I think the, the risks and the potential for loss is part of what makes it such a beautiful sport. Unfortunately, that means that those of us that are still around have to face some pretty fucking harsh facts. You know, uh, I had, um, not not exactly the same type, but I had a, a definitely a time, my time in the sport where I had to make that same decision and had lost some people over the years and then had heard about losses. And you know how it is when you're in the sport for any length of time. Um, you might not know the person that died, but you know a dozen people that knew that person. So it's mm-hmm. always close to home. It doesn't matter if you know yeah. someone. It was a skydiver. Um, and yeah. I was having the same type of thing where I was trying to decide, is this something I still want to do? And it was getting almost to the point where I was having, I was making deals with myself. Okay. I'm going to keep jumping cause I'm making good money and I'm, this is what I do. But, um, if I can make it to my daughter's next birthday, then I'll reevaluate. And then of course the birthday would come around and I'm still jumping and then, okay, I got to make it to her next birthday. And then I, you know, and so you make all these these bargains with yourself, and then you finally just decide this is who I am. This is this is mm-hmm. I'm not making deals. I'm just going to be as safe as I possibly can, you know. And, mm-hmm. and you you just learn to cope with those losses. Everybody's had that. All right, am I still a skydiver? Moments, and clearly we still are. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. I want to ask because we're talking about um, risky stuff and, and kind of writing that, that fine line. Uh, what drove you to make the decision to go for the initial record of flying and landing the smallest parachute ever? Because that is wow. You know, I mean, I know you put a ton into it, but where did that idea come from? Why, why go for that? 
Yeah. Um, started around that time when I went to uh, California. I think I was around for, I don't know, I must be around for a couple of years already, maybe one year. And then I saw, um, I think, uh, yeah, Mike Mullins came to Paris and he was landing a 58 square foot parachute. And uh, I was walking to draw and I heard something different. And then I look up and he was like doing his turn and coming for landing. You know, these days it's normal. Right. But, you know, back in 1998, 1999, I don't remember the year, something like that. It was crazy. Sure. You know, so inspiration, you know, he inspired me. I saw that and that was the same feeling I had when I woke to the airport and I saw people in free fall for the first time. It's sure. like, wow, you know, how does that feel? Right. And I saw that guy on that fast parachute and I was like, whoa, this parachute sounds like a little jet or something, sure. you know? And immediately he's like a superhero to me, you know? It's like, wow, I want to see how this guy looks like, you know? Right. And, and then everybody's talking about, he got a prototype parachute. There was no parachute for sale at that size at the time. Um, I was already into um, um, high-performance parachutes. You know, I don't know what I had at the time. Maybe Stiletto 107 or something. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and um, and then after that, I learned about Icarus canopies, and then I managed to buy one canopy uh, from Icarus. Um, I remember. It was hard to get in the States because everybody thought it was dangerous, you know. Nobody mm -hmm. wanted cross-brace parachute. Nobody had it, only sure. Icarus. Sure, You know, there's no, like, uh, velocities. There was nothing. And then everybody, that's not a good thing. This canopy is not safe, you know. Uh, but I, I was so excited, so I managed to get one. Uh, I think it was, like, an 80 square feet um, light guy, you know. Um, um, 145, 150 pounds. Mm. And then uh, I start jumping the parachute, and everybody's like, "Oh, you, you're turning too low. You're gonna, you know, <laughs> same old for everybody, you know, right. that start doing things." And I was lucky that um, I had some good guys around, you know, like uh, uh, JC and, and and some other, you know, um, people that they knew what they were doing, sure. and they put me on track. And then uh, quickly I was doing the right thing, you know, with those parachutes. And uh, and then soon enough I uh, borrow uh, uh, Mike Mullins' uh, 58 to check it out <laughs> because I'm little, you know, and sure. uh, I was flying right and people trust me. And then I decided to – and then I started competing on souping. And then I started doing okay, and I was competing with the big boys, you know, and sure. I was uh, a part of the family. I felt like part of the family, and uh, and then uh, I was getting lucky now and there and, and, and having good results in soup competition, you know, souping with the big dogs and things sure. like that. And then uh, I approached Icarus, and I said, hey, why don't we do this uh, world record, mm. you know? Mike Mullen, he had a world record, but he never claimed for it. He was doing just for fun or, you know. Sure. And then I'm more, I'm always like, because I need to make a living. 
Sure. I need to survive out of this. You know, how am I going to survive? You know, everybody goes to the direction where, you know, they they have the skills for it, you know, and uh, I never, um, for some reason, I never uh, dream of, like, being teaching people. Sure. I, I didn't feel like being an AFF instructor or a tendon master, you know. Sure. I was trying to find my way in the industry, and then I was like, okay, if you make this a world record, you know, and I can try to get some sponsors, you know, and then sure. – you know, we give a purpose for it, you know, and maybe they will go for it. But all I wanted was to fly a fast parachute. Sure. And then uh, I approached Icarus. They agreed. I was surprised, you know, and they <laughs> made the uh, first uh, 46. I think the year was 2000. So I flew the 46 and uh, I I wrote a, like a storyline to film and, and to educate people about what was happening. And sure. And then I sent the footage to Brazil, and uh, it was playing on the big TV shows in Brazil at the time. There was no, like, uh, much cable TV. It was more like network TV. Sure. You know, no social media, nothing. So everybody in Brazil used to watch this big show. It's like the biggest rating show in Brazil. You know, half of the country watched that show, even more. Right. And... Uh, and then I make the highlights on that show, and then the recognition at the time, I never expect that. And I was like, wow, man, I think this is a way I can make a living, you know, doing projects and filming. And, sure. And then, then I got into this track of, like, you know, doing... I think after that, uh, we, we already were in the process to make, like, Icarus uh, Extreme team. And then we team up, I team up with the... Uh, JC, Clint Clausen, and Jim Slayton, and uh, we became the factory pilots for Icarus Canopies, and then they're supporting us in competitions and little events, and then I went beyond that. I, uh, I got some money from Brazilian company, Yahoo Brazil, to... Um, to go to Switzerland and fly parachutes near to the mountains. Mm. Um, because they used to do those blade runnings, you know? Sure. In small mountains in California, you know, in the United States. And uh, JC was good with that, and Clint was good with that. Me and Jim, we knew nothing about snow and mountains and things like that. And then we went to two events. <clears throat> Uh, forgot where South Lake City. I don't remember um, uh, Flagstaff. I, I don't remember exactly. No, not Flagstaff. But we went to the mountains. I think twice, and then I was like on ski slopes, you know. Mm. And then I told JC, Hey JC, what if go to big, massive mountains in Europe? You know, he's like, Oh, this is dangerous and expensive. You know, how can I do this? And I was like, I'll figure it out. So. <laughs> I got money from Yahoo Brazil, and then uh, uh, we get in touch with our friends, the jumpers from Switzerland, and Stefan, sky surfer guy, mm. Stefan Cloud. Stefan said, hey, Luigi, there's like a Iger here and this, and you got the helicopter, you guys can jump and this and that. So we, we put a project together. We went there when we were the first to fly 
high performance parachute um, um, close to the north face of Iger. That was back <laughs> in 2000. Man. And then um, we started doing that, just like doing projects and, you know, and stuff and filming. And I was sure. sending to Brazil and I was getting, you know, good publicity in Brazil. And then um, I kept on going and I'm still doing you know, stuff like that up to these days. Sure. Well, it was those that were the, the beginnings of um, really getting the sport uh, into the the, um, the eyesight of the general public, right? Because, you know, uh -huh. I mean, skydiving was never a spectator sport. You know, you, you can't go watch it. That's that's one of the reasons that sky surfing never really survived the X Games, because who mm -hmm. wants to go to an event to watch a TV? That's the only way you could see it happen. Yeah. And doing that mountain flying and the, the high-profile stuff that you guys were doing really put it all in the public's face. And it looked cool, and you didn't need to understand it to go, holy shit, that's badass. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. it was. it's that kind of stuff that kind of kicked off this whole um, – not the social media portion of it, but the, definitely the the putting your stuff out there, you know, uh -huh. and especially with the smallest canopy. What what size do you, was it a thirty five that you ended up getting the record with? Well, I got the record in two thousand with the forty six, and then two thousand and four, uh, I came up with the idea again, and <laughs> we did a thirty nine. So thirty nine was a, the big step because you know forty six still close to the fifties. But when you get down to 30s, you know, Man. and then I got that 39 and that, that was very scary. And, yeah. uh, and then it took a lot of training and resource and a lot of uh, tests, you know. I flew the canopy a lot before landing. Sure. And in Paris, I would cut away because, you know, it's a drop zone. You have to jump um, uh, two parachutes. So I was... Um, Cut it away, you know, 3,000 feet, 2,700 feet, and then going to a normal parachute. I still have my reserve, and then I have to rescue the parachute. So I would spot the parachute and I cut it away, and then we got good at doing that, but mm. we did that so much. Um, and then with the 39, I, um, I set the record. And then I had the canopy, and I was comfortable, not really comfortable, but I was doing demos. You know, people would hire me to go to place and jump the parachute, and I sure. would go and, and do demo jumps. And uh, obviously, always, like, relying on good weather situation and everything. Sure. Uh, and then I thought, man, this parachute, it, it flies fast. You know, I'm wondering how we would do with the wingsuit. And then I called Jeb Corliss, and I said, hey, Jeb, do you not try to fly with the uh, – he said, yeah, of course I want to try. And on our very first jump, he was flying with me. He was right there, you know, the whole way, you know. And uh, we were amazed at yeah. the time because there's no record of this, you know. I I knew of people trying to fly parachutes with the wingsuit, but they were just flybys, you know. Sure. And we are like, um, actually flying for the first time. Um, and then... That was great, you know, make all the magazines and I took pictures and all that. And and then for some reason, 2008, um, they changed from the uh, J, I think there was like a step up on the canopy model. 
I forgot what it was, was uh, the VX they flew, and then they step up to the JVX, something like that, or mm. the Fabric or something. And then I was like, wow, now I think I can go a little bit smaller. So we went down to a 37. Jesus. And then, once again, 37 was another record, very similar to the 39, and we did some canopy flying of the wingsuits again and things like that. And then... I said, you know, I retire of this. I will never do this again. This right. is this mall is, you know, I think it's flat, it's landable, you know. I'm right. not gonna ever try anything smaller. And then years went by, and then Icarus contacted me and they said, Hey, listen, uh, um, we got this guy, you know, he's small and light and he seems very professional and he wants to try to break a record, but uh um we're afraid that something would go wrong and we will support him if you agree to be to help him to pass sure. your knowledge and make sure he's safe, you know? And I said, oh, uh, okay. Uh, I, and I thought, I just don't want to be responsible because I know, it, you know, it, it's sure. dangerous, but uh, I will do my best. Sure. And they said, yeah, if you, you're not involved, we're not going to move forward with this. And then I... I got to know Ernesto, and then uh, I worked with Ernesto. I loaned him all my prototypes, you know, for him to start training, and gave him all the feedback I could. And sure. And then he landed the uh, 35. Yep. And then I was like, Ernesto, you don't have to go 35. I'm just 37. You know, why don't you go 36? Right. You know. And he's like, no, 35, you know, I can do it. And I was like, oh man, I would go 36. Don't go 35. So he went 35. Ernesto is quite lighter than I am. Sure. He's, uh, I think he was 52 kilos when he landed. Sure. Uh, my normal weight is 66. So uh, he did a stunning job with the 35, and I was happy because records are made to be broken. Sure. You know, if nobody goes behind a record, you know, how good is this record? Sure. So, I'll tell you what, though, that was one of the things that impressed me most about that story, because uh, I happened to be lucky enough to be there when Ernesto was doing those jumps. So I got to watch all the prep and I got to watch all the work that went into it. But when I found out um, that most of that had happened because you had loaned him the prototypes and helped him along, I was blown away more over your helping someone break your record than the fact that you had the record in the first place. And that's one of the, <laughs> it's one of the coolest things ever about skydiving. And yeah. I don't know very many other sports where an athlete would go, fuck yes, I'm going to help this guy smash my record. Cause that's what they're <laughs> there for. And I really was yeah. blown away. I'm like, that's probably the most impressive thing I've heard about your career was that you happily helped him break your own record, which is so cool. Man. Uh, right on Dean. Thanks so much. But, uh, Man, I was happy that he was going for it because, you know, uh, I think, I don't know, it's a record, you know. Uh, his, I had the record at some point. I don't have to have this record forever, you know. Sure. The industry is moving forward. Sure. I hope that, you know, this crazy thing, a lot of people think it's stupid, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't, sometimes I think it is, but deep in my heart, I don't think uh, it is stupid, right. you know. Of course, sometimes I feel stupid. It's like, why well, am I doing this? You right. know, there's so dangerous, you know. So many things that could go wrong, you know. This canopy doesn't even 
fly the way a, 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 a skydive parachute should fly, you know? It, it just drops off the sky, you know? It's so intense <laughs> right. while I'm doing this. But I know for a fact that it helps the evolution. It's a step that it's, it's making to move forward, you know? Nobody has to jump that parachute. Sure. But everything that's happening, because someone is doing it, it's, it's, it's helping to... to, to to develop better technology, people to see what's possible and to have a different standard of what can be done and things like that. Sure. So uh, right now, I got this guy here. I knew you were going to ask about. Yep. So what is this? Oh, this my is a, uh, God. 34. <laughs> I All right. just got the mail. This so, is a magazine. So this, this is, is the, the, for the people listening to the podcast, he is holding up a parachute literally packed inside a legal size envelope. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. Holy so, this shit. Is 34. And then, oh my God. People must be thinking, he just said that he was done after the 37. <laughs> right. And Ernest is crazy to go two sizes down. Why right. the 35? Now I'm going to go 34. So Ernesto. <laughs> Why did you go 35? You could have gone 36, so I had one. It could be a 35, but I have to go 34. Now you got to go 34 so. to get the record. Uh, oh, well, now, now let me ask you. So you, you start jumping at 25. You're about to turn 50. You said half of your life has been put into skydiving. And you've intentionally geared yourself towards making the the safe decisions. Man, you're about to turn 50 years old and go jump the smallest fucking parachute in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what's yeah. up with that? <laughs> I'll tell you what's up with that. Yeah, man. Um, I don't promise you I'm going to land it. Sure. Um, uh, a lot of tests and a lot of things will have to happen in order for me to make that decision. Sure. Once I make that decision... I will know in my head is 100% landable, and uh, I'm not going to say it's 100% safe because it will rely on how I'm going to perform. Sure. But everything else, all the data, all the training, all the information, uh, the people that will be uh, that I'm going to be relying and make safety decisions with me, I trust them very much, and they will not let me jump if. There's a question mark. Sure. So I might not land it. I might find out, okay, it's landable, but it, it's too risky. Right. If I make, you know, I don't feel comfortable because if I make this little mistake, it's not going to work. So I don't go. Sure. So it will have to have like a little, little bit of room for me to be, feel comfortable uh, to do it. Um, it is very... Um, it is very interesting that I'm doing this and I'm going to turn 50. I think about that. It's like, man, I never pictured this happen, you right. know? But once I got my first, uh, I was jumping in the, um, um, the, the older generation canopy and then I got the uh, Slayer 64. Mm. And, I'm, you know, I used to jump like a, a 77, you know, a 79, like as a, a regular parachute <clears throat> uh, when I was jumping, you know, the uh, JVX. And then I got this layer 
I went to get this lay, and they say, oh, you need to downsize. And I say, no, I'm good at that. You know, I have been downsized a lot. I'm getting older. I want to just stay the same. No, no, this canopy, you you have to fly a heavy wing load. And it's like, wow, really? Like, hmm. How heavy? You know? And they gave me the, uh, um, uh, the wing load and that the canopy is supposed to fly the best. And I found, like, oh, man, 60. It's like... I used to jump the VX60. That was crazy, you know. The opening was so hard, you know. I remember back in the day. Sure. And it was so the landing it was so critical and all that. It's like I don't want to have a 60 square foot canopy for every day jumping. Right. And they say, oh, okay. So I went to 64, and then I got 64, thinking that was be too small. When I make when I made my first landing, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> Wow, this is crazy. So that's why I'm doing this because it has so much more performance on landing. Uh, and then I thought, wow, so yeah, 37 <laughs> will be a piece of cake. You know, I can go smaller. And then I, I start talking, you know, to the experts and to Icarus and all that. And they said, well, there's a... Um, there's something you should consider, you know, the canopy lens better, but it's more elliptical, so it's going to be very twitchy. We don't know if, it, you know, at that size, if the canopy is going to fly straight even. Sure. So you have to try. Right. Um, so I got a prototype 43, and then um, I made, uh, I we already did, um, I would say, one third of the project was filmed uh, with the 43, I did a lot of flying uh, up in the air with the 43. First, you have to figure it out. Like, this is why I'm doing. When I was doing back in the day, it was doing with the resource that I had. So that jumping with the airplane, most of the jumps I did out of the uh, Super Twin order in Paris Valley, mm. which has a side door and then the exit to debag the canopy out of the airplane. It's horrible because it's, it's sideways, so sure. you're like 45 degree angle. Somebody's holding the bag, you know. That was like one of one of the scariest parts for me. Sure, I had a couple malfunctions on opening because of that, and this canopy spins so fast that the g force increases so quick that at, if you let it take three spins, you don't have the strength to bring your hands to the cutaway cable. Sure. You know, the g force is too great, and you will pass out quick and all that. So. I have been always aware of this. And um, so here, and then I decide, okay, the only way I'm going to do it is if I have the funds to have a helicopter and um, to have a more uh, clear way of the opening of the canopy. Because the opening is just as dangerous as the landing. Sure. Then uh, one thing that we learned here was that on my very first jump, I have the heli. I, I do fly helicopters, so I thought the downwash of the helicopter it goes only for about I don't know 60 feet. Mm. So at the time, I let it go and I stretch the lines and I'm falling the canopy. The canopy will open way below that, so it's not gonna uh, affect the canopy opening sure. and the hovering. Exit, it's the most symmetrical, the best opening I can have. So he did that for the first time. So what happened is 
once the little parachute came out of the bag, he's lighter than me. So the downwash pushed the canopy down. So I'm falling and the canopy is falling faster than me. So I see the canopy coming around and going through his own lines, you know. So my first opening, obviously, uh, I was spinning my back right away. I cut it away uh, quickly. And then we watched the video. I understand what happened. So we decided that, okay, I don't, I cannot have the, the helicopter hovering. So if he's going to be moving forward, how good that does. Okay, it's going to be sideways like the airplane. It's going to be slower. We, we don't have to go 80, 70, 60 knots. Right. But we have to go 30, you know. Um, and then we decided to crab the helicopter. So the helicopter stopped and hovers and then start instead flying forward, he flies sideways. Oh, wow. And I'm facing the door that way. So I have the winds coming towards to me 100%. Sure. So the helicopter is flying sideways at 20 knots only. The downwash is behind. So now I have the best perfect openings. The canopy just pops right open, right off the door. <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. So all that stress that I had in the back with the opening, we figured it out with the helicopter. And now... I'm much more relaxed because I have uh, a better opening. The canopy opens so nice. Sure. And then I can focus more on my flight and all that. And then the other thing we are doing down here in Brazil, because we can have a, one parachute out of the helicopter. We can use a base gear. So I just have my base gear and I can fly the prototype down to, you know, a thousand feet, 800 feet, 700 feet, cut it away. And have he landed exactly where I want. So I cut away the canopy, I land, and I look down, the canopy is landing right <laughs> beside me. So the time we have to prep for the next jump, it's much faster than before. We don't have to chase the canopy down, you know. Sure. Every time it was an adventure to get the canopy back. So that's a good thing. Um, we did all that with the 43 here. And... Uh, so far, I made only one landing with the 43. I did several jumps where I flew and I cut it away, and then I figured it out. I did 12 jumps. Okay. And then I thought, okay, I think I can land. I don't think. I know. Uh, and then I did the first land, and then um, the next day, the winds were not so good, so I didn't mess with landing. I, I kept on flying and doing tests in the air, and then... Um, COVID-19 came in Oof. and we got shut it down. And then um, in the meantime, I got the 34 <laughs> made. So now I have to go back and do some more work on the 43, come back, do a lot of work on the 34. Sure. It's going to be back and forth, 43, 34, 43, 34. And you're going to figure it out the best way to try to land safely. Sure. Now, um, how long have you been down because of COVID? I mean, have you not jumped at all or you're just now getting back in the air? Um, I'm going to get back in the air next month, December. I have been, I don't jump since March. Oh, wow. Really That's rough time. To <laughs> yeah. I could have been jumping now, uh, but uh, um, recently, um, 
But uh, I'm lining up projects and things like that. I'm working my schedule here, how I'm going to get back, how I'm going to start training, you sure. know, because I need to get ready. Not just for this, I'm doing other stuff here too. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, next month we are doing the very, I, I think it's the very first time someone lands inside of a car with the parachute. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we're going to do it down here in Brazil. I'm not going to be the guy inside of the car, <laughs> uh, but I'm jealous. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. This, yeah, this guy, he's, uh, he got a few, uh, a couple hundred jumps, maybe 200 jumps, but he's a professional car uh, racer okay. in Brazil. And uh, he's going to be one that he's going to do it. We're going to take off with a huge hot air balloon with the car underneath. And, um, we are getting special made parachutes for the car and all that, and he's going <laughs> to land inside of the car. That's happening next month. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, <laughs> and, man. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. I, I keep seeing so many uh, new innovations and so many cool things that I keep getting caught off guard by the next new thing and the next cool thing. I just saw something on Facebook uh, this last week, the, the electric jetpack for wingsuits. Isn't that amazing from BMW? From BMW. And that was, I think, yeah. what blew me away even more is I'm like, it's BM BMW is doing this? I mean, that's just cool. Yeah. It really is. Uh -huh. I think we're in such a neat time in the sport between Jetman and the Rigid Wing and stuff like this and the guy that's got the jetpacks on his hands that's flying around. I mean, it's yeah. we're, we're very literally stepping into the future super quick now and it's such a cool time because guys like you and i remember when you know stiletto was the scary parachute you know and yeah and so uh -huh. it's changed so much it's it's just a wonderful thing to see and the fact that you're still doing it i mean you're you're, <laughs> you're sitting there with a parachute that yeah, fits yeah. in an envelope in your lap <laughs> I mean, holy yeah. shit man now when I think it's like you said i was, I was just gonna say do you have kind of a time frame in mind for when you're going to be back on the 43 and then given the 34 your first flight? Yes. Uh, I, um, I have scheduled for uh, from January 10th to the 25th to finish the project. So um, between those dates, I'm going to be working full time in this event. I got some people coming from outside of Brazil, you know, I need some uh, uh, reliable people to help me to make uh, sure. uh, safe technical decisions. So I got James coming from Italy uh, for those times. He was part of the, uh, the beginning of the project and um, I'm just waiting for his schedule. Um, we have everything planned out, location, uh, time, uh, production, everything. We, uh, awesome. We're going to make a one-hour documentary about awesome. the uh, 34. And, um, yeah, so next year, 2021. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Now, for everybody that's listening and wants to know how to keep track of that project as well as the other stuff that you've got going on, how do they track you on social media? Where, you know, what, what kind of footprint mm -hmm. have you got out there? Where do they, where okay. do they find you? Yeah, um, well, if you're outside of Brazil, it's I think the best way is on Instagram. Um, I think the um, I have not been posting much during the uh, um, COVID nineteen times because you know uh, yeah. we are not doing much. But uh, 
um, starting December, um, we're going to get back on track. I got like three or four projects that is going to happen between now and uh, 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 February. Um, so Instagram, I think uh, it's a good way to track it down. And um, I'm happy to um, be back doing projects because it was uh, it was a long time, yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, and, and what a project to come back with. I mean, it's going to be pretty epic, man. I cannot wait to see yeah. how it all goes, and then to of course <laughs> watch the uh, watch the documentary after the fact. I'm sure it's going to be super cool. Yeah, what we are trying to do is to um, make a video that. It will, people will understand, you know, all the things you are talking, uh, people should understand, you know, like why and how it works, you know, sure. I want to show people exactly what it is, how does it feel to fly it and why I have the, the, the drive to do it and, uh, and, uh, and I think uh, we have shown some of the stuff, you know, on the earlier projects, but I think we're more prepared now. Mm. to make a better piece and show people better, you know, and, sure. and make people connect more with the, uh, and uh, since you're talking about this, I really want to thank Q Icarus Canopies for being supporting this for so long and for being this amazing company that is, 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 is always like um, into innovation, you sure. know, and take it to the next step and take the risk. You know, there's a lot of risk. I think, uh, uh, we build up a relationship with trust, so they trust me that I'm not gonna jump the canopy if um, I'm not comfortable. Sure, you know, and I will not. I have nothing to prove. You know, sure. this is the great thing. You know, like back in the day when you're talking, like you know, early the '90s. You know, we have so much to prove. Sure, but now we don't have. No, we got nothing to prove. You know, no. we have been jumping for so long. We got nothing to prove. If we can do it professionally safely we'll do it if it's a question mark i'm sorry i'm too scared i'm not gonna make it <laughs> for sure well and the cool thing about uh, icarus as a company too is they would be the first to support you either trying to land it or saying no nah, not going to happen um i had the uh, the privilege to have julian as well as attila both on the podcast and it's great to hear from a company that's that's you know doing all this cutting edge stuff, but they're also willing to go. No, no, no. You guys are pushing a little too hard. We're going to try this instead. And it's so it's mm -hmm. it's refreshing to hear that. It really is. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, awesome. dude, I'll tell you what, man. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to sit down and talk to me. I'm dying to see how it all goes. I want to see that 34 in the air, so I'll really be looking forward to that. Uh, everybody needs to find you on Instagram so they can track what's going on, and I'm sure Icarus is going to be following up on what's going on as well. So, Of again, course. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, 
Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting edge stuff to come. Buy Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.